This is the Exacting Clam Cephalopodcast. I'm Jacob Smullian. Uh, today we're talking about Kinder Kronkenhaus, a play by Jesse Bender, which is being produced uh, next week at the Brick Theater in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. And I'm here with uh, Jesse Bender, the author, with director uh, Nola Laddie, and assistant director and dramaturg A.J. Stujinki. Um Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Uh, Jesse, tell me a little bit uh, about the play and uh, how this uh, production came to be. Sure. So um, this play was published in the end of 2021. We had our debut early in 2022 at Colgate University's Bremer Theater. And now we're going to be showing again, obviously, um, towards the end of 2023. The play itself is broadly about um, kind of an abstract time and place. Um, To me, it's about autism, but it could be about a whole bunch of different things, just any kind of othering, I think. Um, uh, There's a, a very basic plot of a child entering a hospital and not really understanding um, why they're there or why they're considered sick and not really getting any straightforward answers. Um, but largely to me, it's it's more an expo- uh, exploration of language and um, thinking about labels and how we label ourselves and how others label us and how that impacts our lives, basically. And um, there's a chorus pro- quotes from Derrida and there's a lot of not so subtle deconstruction happening throughout the play basically so uh, you do say it's an abstract time or place and and that's in the text too uh um, but it's also clearly abstracted from a specific situation it's the name of the place kinder krankenhaus in german there's it's it's a lot of references to uh nazi era eugenics program um and um uh the uh a lot of the character names are in german or the 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 names of adults mm-hmm. yeah um um and uh you know as i read it that's not just not just like a german stereotype that's being applied of authority or anything of that kind it's 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 really because of the historical situation that's that's mm-hmm. that's provides a framework but it is also lifted out of that in an interesting way yeah, I I was doing research for a novel that was set in um, Berlin right after the, before the wall was built, but right after the war. So that weird nebulous time, basically. And a lot of the um, stuff came back to this, um, you know, how Germans were thinking of themselves, basically, and how to re-root their kind of identity. And um that all led me to stumbling across the, these eugenics programs, which was called Action T4, which was their euthanasia program for their own children. And it makes sense when you're thinking, I mean, I grew up on a farm, so maybe that makes more sense to me. But when you think of breeding animals and getting a better genetic result, it's just something I had never really encountered learning of everything you hear about Nazis in World War II. It's not a part of it that I had heard about much about. I've heard about obviously Jewish people, 
I've heard about um, uh, queer people being persecuted, but I never really heard about, um, yeah, the, the, the them doing anything to their own kids. And so it was all of these, any attribute, um, you know, that's not desirable. So there was a lot of, at that time, not surprisingly, like fe- people with fetal alcohol syndrome, um, Down syndrome, autistic people, people with different mental health issues. And so it was all over the place, but it was um, really, when you just, when you think Nazis couldn't be even any worse, then you're like, oh my God, they they continue to one-up themselves basically. But yeah, I think too, what, that just got me thinking about, um, there's a really beautiful uh, old uh, mental institution where near where I live it's a, in a city called Utica and it's um called Old Main and it's like someone's got to shoot a movie there because it's gigantic it's set in this big beautiful park and um I don't know just the combination of all these me researching this and seeing this huge building and just thinking about institutionalization and all the people kind of lost to history in these places throughout since man began you know we've been setting people aside and stuff like that so it's um interesting this is a little rambly so I apologize it's interesting when you think about the like one the impetus behind this is like I'd love to write a play where everyone's nonverbal, and I wasn't successful in doing that but um you think about people in institutions silenced and then people who are nonverbal even more silenced until you get to like now is basically the first time in history when people are really able to communicate with different technologies and everything. So it's, um, yeah, I'm all of those things, all of those things. That's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Asperger actually was, I believe, in, uh, somewhat involved in, in um, a eugenics program. So I recall, I mean, we was caught up in the institutions of that period. Yeah. So there was a, there was a, a kind of uh, fascination with what was being denied also, which is, is the yeah. paradox. I think that's in your play. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, there's, um, uh, so, so I love the names uh, of, uh, uh, of all the characters and, and also the, even the, the name of the play Kinder Kronkenhaus has a kind of dual aspect for me because it feels very playful. It's, you know, it's a rhythmic word uh in English, kinder and house have very cozy associations. Kindergarten, yeah. and, you know, how, yeah. and um, you know, you um, you play with this, you know, explicitly in the in in the play, the sound of the words. Um, but um, obviously, it means children's hospital. Is in German, it'd just be the normal word for children's hospital. And uh, uh, the uh, so it's. Uh, the you know the the rhythmic quality has uh, almost related to uh, other rhythmic language in the play where your stimming is represented through mm-hmm. repetition of words and things like that. Um, and uh, uh, many of the other names also are contradictory or go in two directions. Like uh, uh, gnome is uh, both he's named gnome by the he's the child who's brought in and is given the name gnome by the generally speaking rather evil doctor uh uh who uh, uh but gnome also means knowledge 
Mm-hmm. So there's, and uh, the doctor's name uh, is Schmetterling, uh, which means butterfly. So I'm, I'm uh, and, and hence freedom. So what, what's going on with uh, that doctor being, being named butterfly? I, I just, well, names are really important to me. I love names. I think they carry a lot of meaning and anything I write, I feel like the names are super, super important. Um, to add just like another layer. I like, uh, well, one thing with gnome, I also, I like gnome all the ways you can play with it. I like how, um, there's another novel I wrote, a big family around here is called noise, but when you write it out, it's no, yes. And I just love that because if you just, so I, I, I like that kind of aspect about gnome too, that it's got this, no, this automatic kind of like oppositional thing about it inside of it. And Noam Chomsky, I thought it was like just perfect. And so, um, but yeah, Schmetterling, I love Schmetterling. I love German for the, the, the sonic quality of just like, like the rhythmic nature of German. Obviously my press is uh, and everything. I'm just obsessed. I like, love a hard K, anything that adds that like beat. Um, Schmetterling, I feel like has that too. And I like, um, the actor who's playing Schmetterling in this, her name's June Lionheart. She, um, in her audition, was like, "Oh, this isn't, you know, an antagonist. She this looks like an antagonist, but really, she's just trying. The doctor's just trying to do what she's been told is the right thing to do." And I'm like, "That's exactly like, and that is a very that not an it's an autistic quality to be like this is." the way we do it type of thing. And to me, a very German way to be like, this is the way we do things. This is the right way. And having a hard time deviating from, from like a, a set path. Um, so yeah, I, I liked the idea of a butterfly. I like the harshness of it, but also how it means something quite pretty and delicate actually. And yeah. That's right. Uh, because she says explicitly, so I'm like, I have a tablet here and it keeps locking. Uh, uh, she she says explicitly uh, to uh, to Noam, yes, I'm not that different from you. I'm not empathetic, empathetic either. Uh, right. I have to do what I need to do. With, um, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. If I could cut in, there's yeah. also the transformational nature of a butterfly going from a caterpillar to a butterfly and the metamorphosis. And that's so interesting when you look at the play and its examination of masking and transforming yourself and trying to be something other than what you innately are. So that's just this extra little layer of it. That's really cool. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, That's right. Because um, from the point of view of the doctor, freedom is transformation. Right. Right. Um, And uh, you know, the perform through performative conformity. Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, let's talk about the cast because uh, uh, this is a rather special cast. Uh, and and what what was the the process for um, uh, for conceiving this? Well, you know, maybe maybe we need to just, just back up a little bit and talk a bit about the production and and the ideas that went behind it, and then into that. Uh, I don't know Nola or AJ, whoever you. Um, 
I mean, I know with this production, I actually came in after most of the play was already cast. Um, so I think actually, Jesse, if you <laughs> oh. talk about the audition process. Well, we just cast a, a really wide net. I reached out to mm -hmm. every um, kind of person I connection in any possible way. And also through the first production, we were familiar with an, a group called CoLab, Co slash Lab, and they do um, the theatrical productions well, with people of all different types of uh, ability in the city. So that led to connections and um, that's how we cast the net. And then Nola, I met Nola really through uh, happenstance, you know, connections of connections of connections, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it, it worked out really well. <laughs> so so when, when you were yeah. setting about to do this production, then you, know, you, you reached out to a bunch of people and when you, when you put out a, a call for cast what were you, what were you looking for and what was what was in your mind and 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 how did you find the people that you found yeah thank you it's definitely um to me the one of the important part in writing this it's like a i wanted to do a play that was and, and i don't know everything about plays you know i i come from more of a fiction world and everything but i wanted to write a play that was about autism or neurodivergence that was weird like a lot of the plays I see about autism were are very like you know high school prom night I want to get a date type of thing which is great there's nothing wrong with that I, but I wanted something like super I like weird like all the other stuff I like so I wanted that element I wanted to tell like kind of like this autistic like neurodivergent history and stuff like that but I also wanted kind of a praxis element too where we had um, an opportunity to kind of celebrate autistic and neurodivergent talent. So that was a really important component in casting people is looking for um, neurodivergent people to tell these neurodivergent histories. Yeah. So um, the, uh, what about the ages of the cast? This is, I, I don't know what you, what you did because I know in the, in the play, you really had the idea of, of, of a cast of children and obviously most of the characters are children um even the doctor at one point is described as having a prepubescent body uh yeah. so you know there's um so how are you dealing with that well we cast adult actors mm -hmm. um but i think that actually works really well because there is this uh autistic experience that happens quite a lot where you get very infantilized and people view you as childlike or without agency or uh, complete intelligence or understanding. So in a logistical sense, you know, it is uh, easier, less uh, complicated to work with adults than with children. There's less time restrictions and availability restrictions, but it also works really well dramaturgically because uh, it's somewhat reflective of an actual experience. Um, another thing about um, the play while I'm talking to you, AJ, is um, it's a very visual play. Um, you know, the the play would be, it would be hard to make it uh, a radio play, for instance, without, you know, editing it substantially. Uh, it's really conceived, and 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 Jessie's an artist. I mean, her bio says she's an artist. You know, she, she 
is isn't locking herself into just being a word person. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I've seen quite a bit of Uriah. I love it. And and um, there are there are just there's just a lot of visual imagery. The use of sparks of fire, of words that are being projected. Even just the sense of of space seems very important in the play. Um, so uh, that's why I'm really curious to see your production and how you're dealing with that. What is it like? working on that rather than uh you know uh, another play that's uh, uh you know purely situational and you know drawing room comedy or something. i think i can take this one um in uh working with like the design and production team it's been a lot of fun to make these like text elements come to life um like when i read the script for the first time it felt like like I could see so much in my mind's eye. Like it had that like literary visual world that I was seeing as I was reading it. Um, and it's been really interesting, like taking something like fire where I don't think we can like, we can't set a fire in the theater, but like being like, how do we implement the sounds of fire during transitions or like where behind these lights can we use shadow to like show this change of age? Um, and also I've uh, been working with the projection designer to use some of the actor's handwriting in the projections. And that way of like handwriting versus text being like a kind of deconstruction of words and like implementing that Derridean stuff in there. Um, and so it's like, yeah, it's been a lot of fun to, to take all the visual elements and then implement them into a stage space. I think even more complicated too is that it is the brick is there's there's like in a good way fun challenges because it's not this mm -hmm. huge expanse of space to pack a whole bunch of things visually you have to I think that would be mm -hmm. its own set of challenges you know getting into a small space and packing all that stuff in so yeah and particularly like um yeah like the brick has bricks it's not gray um, and also something like, I've been having lots of good conversations with my set designer about Python's cave and how we can like put a cave inside of the theater that then can like appear and clear very easily. Um, and like, yeah, taking, I think like, taking the feelings that the visuals evoke and putting them into the brick. Um, yeah. I think so I, was, I, I wanted to ask you about Python's cave and, and, and how you're going to deal with that. And I guess Python came closest to your original vision, Jesse, uh, of, um, uh, you know, the, uh, Python is, you know, is, is Pythian. He's, uh, he or she is the, uh, is an oracle uh, perceived as having a great deal of knowledge, but, but doesn't communicate normally. Um, so, uh, where is the cave? Where, where, where? Uh, uh, how, how do you present it? For this, yes. Um, <clears throat> we have the cave as like there's a place that the actor playing Python, uh, like, is constantly exiting to. Um, that is her cave, and then there's a scene that takes place inside of the cave, um, and we'll use fabric with paintings of uh, like snakes and reptiles and small animals, kind of like cave paintings. 
to illustrate that we're in a cave and that'll make like a kind of tent-like structure that the actors can squeeze into to evoke that cave imagery. And then there'll also be smoke and there'll be sounds and lights. Um, so it'll be a really big design moment and it'll have that like uh, kind of dusty and closed like oracle space. I love it. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been a really exciting scene to to dream about and design. Um, it's been important, especially with this play that has so many like detailed stage directions and detailed like visual elements in the space to like honor every line as much as we can and like really make sure that we're including the full picture of what's visually happening as well as what's being said. So, so um, the uh... Uh, you know, I'm curious about the way that, you know, with, um, I guess, um, fair to say, like a largely neurodivergent cast, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what is uh, their response to the play? Uh, you know, uh, how is that special? Um, does that bring something out in the play that's different? Or is that just um, an ancillary good or or? How do you see it? I have some things, but I feel like Amy, you might want to take this one. Sure. I mean, um, if you would like to speak to, you know, the cast response at one point, uh, definitely feel free. But I think, um, you know, it's not just an ancillary good, as you said. I think it's really important to the authenticity and uh, proper portrayal of the piece to have uh, actors who are neurodivergent in one way or another play these characters and inhabit them. Because, you know, as an autistic person, it's actually very offensive to see someone who isn't autistic try to take on mannerisms or behaviors that they associate or understand autistic people doing. Um, because it's not really coming from a genuine place. And there's that lack of nuance of understanding of really why a lot of these behaviors happen and how one person might express it differently from another person. This is actually something that came up in rehearsals a bit because um, there was a stage direction one time that a character is flapping their hands, which is, you know, a very common stim. Uh, and even though many of these actors are neurodivergent, when we prescribe that to the actor, from my perspective, at least, it felt a little weird and put on like this isn't something um, authentically happening from their body. Um, so those are certain things where we take it a little less literally and look at what is the intent. The intent here is that the character is stimming and it doesn't necessarily have to be flapping their hands. Um, and so we did a whole exercise to kind of explore what stimming is, where it comes from and how it is its own very valid nonverbal form of communication. You know, people aren't doing this just to do it. It's either, um, you know, a self-soothing technique 
or it's body language in the way neurotypical body language is. You know, if someone's sitting, this is a podcast, so I have to describe myself, um, crossed arms and shoulders hunched over, that non-verbally communicates to a lot of people that maybe they're feeling upset or withdrawn. And in that same way, an autistic person stimming could communicate that they're happy or they're afraid or any other number of emotions. So we went through this whole exercise where, you know, we played with how can you communicate different states of being without words through just your body and through repetitive motions. And so it was really this attempt to generate authentic uh, movement from each of the actors and use that as a basis and a kind of language for when we wanted to incorporate stims into the show. So rather than being like, you need to flap your hands, you need to jump up and down, you need to do this specific choreographic movement with your body, uh, it's a little more vague and uh, a little more freedom for the actors. Like, okay, you're um, anxious right now. How can you show that? How can you soothe yourself? Um, And so it allows for the actors to let their own authentic experience uh, embody these characters. So really interesting that you're you know, talking about authenticity in this uh, mm-hmm. in, in recreation uh, because this is also really tied to the substance of the play as well you know which is uh it, you know it's about otherness but it's also about authenticity right and mm-hmm. and um you know uh gnome says to schmetterling uh is the cure um saying the right words in the right order at the right time and well of course that's what the actors have to do and you know what people involved in any recreative performance i'm a classical musician you know it's the, the problem is having the letter you're getting the letter right but having the spirit right and the letters tends to win you know historically i think you know, we, we sort of see but uh so what um uh, I, I, I'm imagining hearing that line in the play and, you know, feeling a lot of irony in the situation. Uh, yeah. uh, well, we're really yeah. lucky to have Jesse as a playwright because, you know, with that past example, I know that Jesse does care more about the spirit of it um, versus, you know, that specific, I mean, Jesse, you can chime in, but I'm, I'm sure for you, the important part of that is that they're stimming and that's what's being portrayed and but also Nola I think as you said we're trying to um get the what did you say earlier about that the accuracy and getting things to the letter as much as possible oh yeah being being as true to the text and this also reminds me like um like AJ said and like doing exercises based on stimming and finding sims that are authentic to the actors um those like motions also become authentic to the characters And so as the actors have like built out their characters' lives and experiences, um, they then can channel these emotions, which then naturally bring out certain stims um, because we have a neurodivergent cast. And so it's this really great lending of like, it's really just like doing character work um, and then doing character work um, and playing 
a role that is authentic to your experience or an experience that you can, that like these actors can really empathize and relate to, then creates these really genuine performances. And so there's certain things where like, um, the hand flapping in that place and time doesn't happen, but it is a show that's full of movement and stims and uh, vocal habits and ticks. Um, and I feel like it's like being true to the essence of the play, that essence is certainly there. Um, and it's there in a way that's created a lot of, um, I feel like among the cast and also the team as we've been working on it, it's been a really nice way to process like being authentic in our lives um, and just having pride in who we are and like knowing that we don't have to mask in theater all the time. Um, yeah, that's just been a really cool experience. I just, I, I 100% <clears throat> agree with what everyone was saying. I think it's really one thing that was really important to me is representation, just like everyone's been saying. Um, and I, again, I don't come from the theater world. I never realized like everyone's like, in my experience so far, people are like, oh, this is how it has to be read. I'm like, oh, I don't know, guess, you know, like I don't, I get, you know, I, I don't, some things I care about and some things that, but, and I, I think that's really nice and wonderful. And I'm really excited about that. And I've said before, like one nice thing with theater is like, versus fiction is fiction. Everyone's like, ugh, why did you do this? Why didn't you do this? And theater's like, how do I make this work? No matter what, no matter how crappy it is, <laughs> we're trying to make it work, you know? So it's, it's like, whoa, what a weird, different experience. But my, I, one fear of having this was that this, there's a thin line between, like, I didn't want anything to become spectacle. Like the whole point of this was more just like inclusion and, and natural happenings and stuff like that but this isn't like you know an exhibit or something this is just but I it, part of it is like exposure to neurotypical audiences I see people who are who are very uncomfortable people of my age I don't most people that I talk to their experience with people who have more support needs is they were very segregated like I, I know in my high school I didn't know any of the kids you know, in, in certain classes and stuff like that. And and I had a hundred people in my, <laughs> my graduating class. So it's not like we were gigantic. It was, there was no reason for it. So I'm, I'm hopeful that these, you know, being this, these genuine performances and that even people in the audience are going to have, you know, ticks and, and stems and stuff like that too. And, and we're just have to just getting used to the different type of way of, of being in that space you know, we're, we're used to these implicit rules, even though we don't even realize it. So if someone calls out from the audience or whatever, someone starts clapping their hands or whatever, that's parts that seem not appropriate, appropriate. I hope that is also a part of the experience that makes people question why they think this needs to happen X way. Again, a little rambly, but I'm, I'm excited for all of it. And I'm excited for, for these kind of innate organic reactions from the actors that and audience, so. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, one of the things about that can be magical about theater is the blurring between pretense and the immediate. You know, it's, yeah. it's a game that's being played and at the same time, something peeks through it that is not a mask. Uh, and so I'm, I'm uh, very excited for this. Um, uh, Anything else that you know you really want to cover uh, about this that's on your mind? It's weighing on you. Uh, 
Um, I'd love to talk about the accessibility process for a moment, if that's cool with everyone. Yeah, that's right. Please do. Yeah, because, um, you know, going into a process with a neurodivergent cast and also, you know, other disabilities present as well. Like, for example, I also have chronic illness. And so that's something that uh, can be accommodated. Um, There are a lot of standard ways of doing things in theater that would really not be uh, applicable or the best way to do things in a process such as this. Um, And so what we wanted to do was before we even got into the rehearsal room, uh, get an idea of everyone's individual needs. So I created a little Google form that asked a bunch of questions, you know, do you have any sound sensitivities? Do you have any uh, light sensitivities or texture sensitivities? Um, Do you have any food sensitivities? And this was sent to the entire company. And we asked that everyone, whether they identified as disabled or neurodiverse or not, to fill it out. And part of that is practical because it's great for us to know if someone has allergies. You know, we might be bringing snacks to rehearsal every so often. And even if someone is you know, otherwise able-bodied and neurotypical, if they have a peanut allergy, that's something that should really be accommodated and should be considered in the room. Um, But then, you know, because disability and autism is also so often viewed through a deficit mindset, uh, I also really wanted to include some positive questions on there. You know, is there anything in the space that could bring you joy, any sounds or smells or food uh, or anything like that? Because it's also a very real autistic experience to have sensory euphoria and for certain things to be able to really uplift you on a level that isn't necessarily uh, the same for neurotypical people. Um, And yeah, everyone was really great about filling it out and it allowed us to kind of create an accessible baseline. Um, Because if you look at the cultural model of disability, um, and please, if you have any clarifying questions, let me know, but it basically says that the very idea of accommodations is actually evidence of ableism. Because if the baseline was already accessible, then disabled individuals wouldn't need accommodations. They would just already be there. Um, And very early in my disability work, I heard someone talk about this example of that, like if a choreographer comes into a room and gives the choreography and says, oh, if you can't do this part, then you can do this instead, that's accommodations. But if a choreographer comes into the room and says, okay, what can we all do and creates the choreography based off of that, that's universal accessibility. That's an accessible baseline. Um, And so that's really what we were trying to do as much as possible to create something that uh, works for everyone from the start. And you don't necessarily need accommodations because it's already at a place that is accessible. So that's with regard to the 
participants in the production? What about the audience? Uh, uh, is, is there anything mm -hmm. unusual in, in with regard to the audience, or anything that's you know that's different from the norm there? Um, our Saturday matinee is a sensory friendly matinee. And so we'll be softening some of the lights, having softer sounds, um, and just having most likely like a longer intermission um, to allow for like a more sensory friendly experience. And also, like Jesse said earlier, um, it's like encouraged to speak out, participate, stim if needed during the show. Um, there's no strobes or anything that would be like particularly dangerous. Um, but I think that for, I know for people I've talked to who are coming to see it, um, people are just excited to maybe see themselves on stage being portrayed in this authentic way. Um, and yes, then we have that matinee. Things will also be like a little more distanced um, to create like a particularly uh, accessible show. Great. Um... I remember one other thing, though, that we were planning to bring up, oh, I yeah. forgot, which was uh, just, you know, sort of a, a detail that it interested me about your, mm -hmm. um, the, the, how you dealt with the script in, in, uh, in, in rehearsal. Yeah. So um, what I did was I took a, I just took a, like, copy, a, word, a copy PDF document um, and printed it out on full-size paper as to not use like a physical script because they're a bit smaller and I feel bad writing on it. Um, and so I printed that out and put it in, I know podcasts can't see, but in this like three ring binder that's got some post-its and stuff in there now. Um, so I could write stage directions and questions and notes and add post-its and stuff like that. Um, and so basically used the more novel version as my blocking and staging script. Um, and then as we're getting into tech week, where someone's going to be calling all the lights and sounds of the show, our stage manager, Alexa, actually reformatted the script. And so it's in like that classical uh, theater play style um, with like all the stage directions indented um, and italics for certain things, uh, like name, text name style of like how plays are usually written. Um, and so that'll be like the script that's being called off of um, for the runs of the show. But I used um, Jesse's version, the novel version, as I was staging and blocking, just because I thought that the flow would feel more natural to me, um, just because that's the way it was originally written. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's how I've been using it. And then some of the actors have used the reformatted script. Um, to highlight their lines with that um, for ease of like lines versus blocking. So it's sort of but, a geeky yeah. curiosity on my part about this mm -hmm. uh, because I was involved I and mean, I, I formatted this version, the, I'm, I'm here I am holding up the book. That people oh, I see, see. yeah. Uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, it was sort of designed to be for reading, not, not for, for that mm -hmm. purpose. And, I love annotations. So I'm, you know, immediately fascinated by the idea of the annotations. But I also, I cannot write in a book. I'm totally, it just, I'm, I'm pathologically incapable of doing that. Which is <laughs> so. So I'm glad that there's at least one other person out there with that hang up. Uh, uh, so this has been a lot of fun. Um, so 
again, this is happening at the Brick Theater, September 28th through 30th. It's mostly sold out, apparently. Uh, there are four showings, uh, 8 p.m. every night and 2 p.m. on the last day, which is a Saturday. Yes. Yes. So um, maybe there'll be standing room. We'll see. I'll, I'm also video. I'll be uh, recording it and adding it to YouTube and everything so people can get not as great an experience, but at least it'll be a document of it. So. Oh, that's wonderful. That's good. <laughs> well, listen, uh, thank you all. And uh, I'll rush and try to stick this up so that uh, people can hear about this. Thank you, Jacob. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>